0: Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I want to take a minute and recognize you and just welcome you into the Kelly family. This whole show exists to help you. So, if you're an organizational leader, maybe you're an aspiring leader, or maybe you're just trying to gain some basic business knowledge, we want to know that we are here for you to answer your questions. Maybe you're wrestling with um, a leadership topic, or you had a conversation with an employee that you want to know how to take some next steps, or you want to get in touch with some of our faculty, see some of the research they're doing, um, or you just know of someone who would make an awesome guest for our show. We would love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to reach out to us by email. um, And that email address is ROI Pod, R O I P O D at I U P U I dot edu. Again, R O I P O D at I U P U I dot edu. So every now and again throughout the year, we like to bring on some of Kelly's finest economists on the show to really get a gauge and a sense of what's happening within various industries. You know, there's a lot of organizational leaders are trying to always have a finger on the pulse of the economy, whether they're going to make moves or they're going to be aggressive and risk-taking this year or this quarter, or whether it's time to kind of maybe take a step back, slow down, reassess um, the, the markets, and then try to uh, strategize around those. It's all about we're trying to position ourselves to garner success for for our team, for our organization, um, and for our communities that, that we're trying to impact. Um, so we are going to dive right In bringing back, you know them, you love them. Phil Powell, the Associate Dean and Economist here at the Kelly School of Business, and Kyle Anderson, Clinical Assistant Professor of Economics, who is also the Faculty Chair of the Evening MBA program. Phil, Kyle, welcome back to the ROI Podcast. So here we are again talking economics. You know, this is one of our more popular episodes where we do get a lot of downloads, a lot of takeaways, uh, a lot of questions um, from our listeners revolving around economics, economic principles, factors, you know, what's happening. Um, so I'd like to kind of start this by, you know, let's start with for individuals who may um, have a very baseline um, ear on what's happening in the economic markets. What are some of the hot topics that are influencing um, some of these trends? So I'd love to go around the horn, Kyle, starting with you, you know, like just just getting some, some baseline um, topics that we want to address today.
1: So I I think that everything in 2021 is about recovery in terms of the economy. So we are, you know, obviously from a public health perspective, we're still dealing with a, a very severe and ongoing pandemic right now, and it's affecting a lot of people. And but that that the economic impact of that pandemic was primarily in 2020, and so what we're seeing in 2021. Is getting things back to normal or the the quote unquote new normal, if you will, um, and really trying to get into a recovery mode. So we've had, you know, some some GDP. We we had you know severe slowdown in 2020. We've had some kind of upswings back and forth in you know 2021. But, but things are recovering, but they're doing so not at a, at a perfectly even rate. It's not like you can't shut down the world's largest economy the way we did in 2020 and have everything just kind of turn the switch back on and, and have things back to normal. So we're, we're getting there. We're, I, I think the um, economic situation we're, right, we're in right now is pretty good and it's getting better, but there are definitely some hiccups that we're seeing.
2: To build on that. Matt, you know, you know, business, businesses, households, we all rely on prices to give us signals of how to make decisions, how to allocate resources. Uh, And prices evolve with the business cycle, the ups and downs of the business cycle. Well, we haven't had a pandemic like this since 1918. This is a once in a century event. And our markets don't know how to price. Prices are Everything's hyperactive right now. This is a hyperactive economy. It's sort of in a manic state. It doesn't know which direction to go. Um, We're experiencing shortages in some areas and we're experiencing excess in others. Um, And what happened during last year is that two things the government, uh, the Congress, and the Treasury were very generous with the social safety net, which was good. Actually, last year, 2020 was the lowest year in 35 years in terms of bankruptcies. So there's a lot of indicators that are not properly quoted where actually the, the, the social safety net was very effective and prevented social catastrophe. We could have had a much worse social and political situation in 2020. We didn't. Um, it was a tough year, but it could have been a lot worse. And so you had not only the, 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 tr- the government the federal government being very generous with social safety net and transfer payments, but also the Federal Reserve been very, uh, been very aggressive in keeping interest rates basically at zero. So all this has kept money in the market and has kept us from economic uh, collapse. So the other thing though, is that a lot of that money went into the system, but people didn't spend it. Um, the biggest, to me, the biggest statistic from 2020 that we're still sort of figuring out how to make sense of is that in the second quarter of 2020, the savings rate went from about 5% to 33%. And everybody was stashing away cash to wait for the recovery. And so there's all this pent up demand that's being fueled by all this excess savings. And you have a lot of liquidity and savings in the system. And to be honest, there's not a lot of good investments out there. And what's happening is, is a lot of those investments are finding their way into things like Bitcoin, trading cards, the speculative type assets, which are destined to to, to fall. But more more worrisome is the is the stock market. The stock market people instead of putting their money spending their money, they they become day traders or they put their money in a mutual fund, which is which is they're saving their money, but it's caused this artificial run up. And in, in stock prices, and if you look at the the price earnings ratio, after it's corrected for the business cycle, what we call the Shiller price earnings ratio, the last time it was this high was right before the dot-com bust in 2000. So yes, we're in a recovery. I, I agree with Kyle. But the problem is, is that prices and, and investment values are, are sending some false signals um, That 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 to me could make it be making short-term decisions that could put them in financial jeopardy so that's what i'm most worried about and i'm also most worried about inflation um the since last year prices are up five percent the cpi is up five percent now we did have a short fall in prices in the second quarter of 2020 that's what happens with any contraction in demand but still even once you correct for that we haven't seen this type of of annual price increase Since for at least 30 years, so since the late 70s, early 80s. So that really brings into question what the Federal Reserve is doing.
0: And I want to get into the labor shortages, and I also want to start a a friendly conversation around inflation and get your take on it. But I want to start first off with the million-dollar question. Phil, you were starting to allude to it. Does the markets or are there indicators or are there things that are beginning to kind of make you nervous as economists, you know, kind of similar to the dot-com burst or uh, to the 2008 housing market crash? Or, you know, are we at the cusp of a post-pandemic artificial crash um, in the future? And is that something that uh, organizations and just, you know, everyday people should be worried about?
1: I don't know. I, obviously, Phil just suggested that that he's, you know, pretty concerned about some of these things. I'm a little baby a little more sanguine about this idea that that we're we've got some pending collapse and, and I, I certainly you know w- would have my concerns about some of the really speculative assets. I, you know, I, I think that predicting short term what's going to happen either in the stock market or any of these other even, you know, more speculative, more volatile markets, things like, you know, cryptocurrencies or or trading cards or or whatever that is. Like, I think those things are really difficult. I guess from my perspective as an economist, what I think about is how likely are these to have broader ramifications into the economy, right? And, And you mentioned 2008 and in 1999, we've talked about big market declines. One of the big things to think about, you know, the problem in 2008 was that banks were involved with it, right? They were fully leveraged up. They were making all of the bets in real estate um, or, and they were the ones left holding the bag. And, and that left a significant financial crisis that affected all parts of the economy that, that spread from Wall Street to Main Street. So I think the question, there's two questions here is, is are we, you know, at risk for a significant decline in asset values? And I, I would say that there's, you know, there's always that risk out there. And then the second question is, because Matt, you asked about you know, how do businesses prepare for that? Well, the, the question is how far reaching would something like that be? And are there any indicators that the, um, that any decline in asset values would hurt the broader economy significantly? And right now, I guess I, I'm not as concerned that, that those red flags are out there.
2: You know, actually, Matt, I would agree with, with Kyle in the, in the regard that this, this climb in asset values, this climb in equity values, is broad. It's broad. It's broad based because people don't have anywhere else to put their money, which is different than, say, 2008, which, which you had a bubble because there was basically fraud in the mortgage securities business. Um, and in ni- 1999, it was because dot coms were just nobody knew how to value them. It was more focused. So, to Kyle's point, it is broad based. You know, if we see a 20 or 30 percent correction, it'll be it'll be it won't be concentrated in one industry. It'll just be across the board. But we but equities are overvalued right now. I mean, the price equity. You, we typically look at, at the P/E ratios, the price equity ratios. Now, how much can the st- how much profitability are the stock value supporting? And we just haven't seen this type of 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 overvaluation since since 2000. So these are going to come down, but it's not because of some structural problems of the economy. It's because in some ways we saved too much money in 2020, which is kind of weird to be saying in in the in in the American economy because we typically think we're always undersaving, which we typically do long term. Um, The issue is 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 interest rates, right? So. Um, there's some argument that the Federal Reserve kept interest rates low for too long before 2000 and 2008, like in the mid-2000s, um, and that led to speculative activity. There's similar criticism now that Fed Chairman Powell, n- no relation, uh, is, is keeping rates too low. And I'm starting to be a little bit more critical of the Fed. Um, you know, inflation is a tax on the poor as much as it is the rich. And if you have cash in the bank, or if you're earning a wage and you're not in a in a job that gives generous raises, um, 5% is is like 5% fall in the value of your cash. And this is something that we need to, to wake up to. Now I do I do agree with a lot of other economists that say these are short-term issues driven by like supply chain and labor shortages, which we can get to in a minute. Um, but I would, and I'm starting to be very critical of, of the Federal Reserve keeping rates at zero for so long, especially when there's already, there's already liquidity in the system. Um, and, and so the question is, is, is the Fed deepening the speculative activity? And there's, there's some, there's a number of economists that would say it is. Um, now you you asked about the labor shortage. Uh, the labor shortage is, a, is, 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 uh, an acceleration of, of a talent drought that businesses need to get used to because of demographics, right? We're starting to see a, a, a big decline in the number of high school graduates each year. That's because of birth rates. Um, we've also seen over the last five years, significant limits on immigration, uh, both documented and undocumented. That hurts our labor supply. Um, workers right now face uncertainty with, for their own health. It's hard to, to find daycare um, and there's a lot of mental, mental, a lot of America, there's an unprecedented level of mental health challenges out there. That's going to keep people from going back to the labor force, our labor force participation rate, which is the percent of people in the labor force that either want a job or have a job has fallen by two percentage points. That's a lot of folks in a 330 million, uh, population. And this is, this is, this is why we're seeing these labor shortages. Yeah, that, that's a great
1: point, <laughs> Phil. I, I agree with that. And the, to build on that, what we're seeing in that is there's there's two parts to the labor force participation rate decline, right? One is this baby boomer generation, We something we could have anticipated for a long time, right? We, we know that there are people hitting you know, 65, 70 years old, and, and they're done. And I think that the pandemic accelerated some of that. Um, and you can also point to, hey, the stock market's been really good. Some people are just saying, I, I can afford to retire now. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pull the trigger. The other part that is maybe more troubling, although you know that, that's a problem, is that we're seeing women pulling out of the labor force disproportionately relative to men. And that suggests that, as, as Phil mentioned, things like childcare issues are probably impacting that. Hopefully, some of that is still pandemic-related, right? Some schools are still closed, or or, or some family situations are, are still um, having trouble with that. Where we might see that turn around in the next six months to a year, versus the these broader demographic trends of, of people just getting old. I, I think Phil's point about you know if if we want if we're really concerned about labor you know, immigration is probably our answer to that. And it's really something we're not going to change our birth rate significantly. And even if we do that now, it's not going to help our labor force for 18 to 25 years. So um, really, immigration is the lever that we can control right now. And we could, from a policy perspective, need to do that a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, even just kind of reading some different news articles and journals, you know, there is there is some that ties into um, people having a hard time because they are making a lot more money on some of these um, government benefits and safety nets um, that are temporary, um, you know, without getting too political or, you know, one way or the other, you know, I think that does get baked into the cake in, in the factor of labor shortage, you know, so what happens when, you know, some of the emergency funding uh, to help families get through some of these tough times either it dries up or it's okay, hey, you know what, we need to get back back to business. I mean, what does that play into um, in the labor shortage? I mean, do we see a potential resurgence? Is there something where, are we going to get to a point where demand, kind of similar to what Phil was saying, saving money during this and all this pent-up demand, is there a pent-up demand building in the talent world where people are going to uh, get into the workforce at record numbers um, as things change in the future?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think we're about to find out the answer to that question because a lot of the extended unemployment benefits are, are expiring now and, and those sorts of things. So for, for those folks who feel like the reason that we have a labor shortage is because of government policy, well, that's, that's about to end. Now, most estimates that I've seen suggest that that's a, a small proportion of those who are sitting out of the labor market right now. Um, so I don't expect there's going to be some huge surge that that all of a sudden all these businesses that are looking for work are going to get flooded with, you know, potential employees and, and applicants. Um, I, I don't think that's really what's driving this, this quote-unquote labor shortage, but, um, you know, ultimately it's an empirical question. We'll, we'll find out here, I think, relatively soon.
2: Matt, I, I do think at the margin that, you know, there are enough cases, there's enough evidence in the US economy that these benefits have created an incentive to stay out of the labor force. And it's completely rational. If you can make more money by not working, you're gonna do that for your family. And, and so I do think there is evidence that it, it has a marginal impact, but it, I think it's disproportionately focused upon by in, in, the, in the media and in the political debates. Kyle is right. It is contributing, but it's contributing in a small way. There are bigger structural forces at play. And our policymakers need to realize that. And businesses also need to realize this. Businesses, managers, not be sitting on the side going, well, once they finally revoke the, the, these unemployment benefits, then all the labor force is going to flood back in. That's just not the truth. You will have people entering the labor market when they weren't there. That's a real, that's a true statement when you scope out you have to ask yourself how much does this explain what we're seeing and the disincentive to work from generous social safety net is um it, it it's it's not dominant and by the way it was these benefits that saved us from economic and social collapse during the worst contraction since the great depression and in fact this contraction came faster than the great Depression. so you can't you know, you got to credit the social safety net for truly keeping us from catastrophe. But if, but if you're a business, if you're a business, don't, don't use that as a crux. You know, in, in economics, we say the way to cure a labor shortage is to pay workers more. So businesses are going to have to realize that they're going to have to adjust their business model to, to pay lower skilled individuals more money. They also need to look at automation. And that's where you need to focus your, your management energy, not on blaming some some issue that's blown out of proportion in the media.
1: Well, I think those are great points. And, and I, I just kind of wanted to build on what you mentioned there at the end. You know, it seemed like a couple of years ago, every time we'd get asked about labor – People are saying, oh, you know, the, the automation and the robots are going to take all of the jobs and, and you know, nobody's going to be able to get a job because we've got all of this automation and everything. You know, here we are a short time later and it's now like, you know, there's no workers. We can't, you know, and, and so I, I think that the economy, I mean, as an economist, one of the things we love about studying these systems is yes the, these fluctuations happen and and the the economy gets a little bit out of equilibrium and, and for a while it seems that unemployment's a little higher because you know you can't you, you can't find jobs other times you can't find workers but it kind of matches and i do think along with phil here that this may these even this kind of short period of a labor shortage it may spur increases in productivity but it may spur investments that are good for the long run health of the economy. And increased productivity is what makes us you know, wealthier as a country. Being able to get more value out of an hour's work is really what drives economic growth. And so, yeah, the, these short-term pains are, are significant, but I, I think they could be long-term healthy for the economy.
0: Before we jump into uh, inflation rumors and and talking about uh, talks of inflation, I do want to ask one more question in this realm. You know, we obviously obviously see talent um, shortages and Uh, just kind of exact what you've both alluded to is it's exasperated an already major issue you know even before pandemic the talent was you know starting to become hard to come by and now it's just even more so you know post-pandemic but what about you know the supplies you like you know you hear in building construction you hear in raw materials that um even supply of of uh, goods you know is um diminishing and i want to talk about more so real quick from both of you what indicators not just in job but even in in, in in supply or whatever it looks like, what indicators should uh, businesses focus on as it relates to, you know, talent shortage, as it relates to supply shortage, and and how that's going to play out long-term as organizational leaders are trying to strategically plan for the future.
2: Great question, Matt. And I think, I think the issue of talent shortage is different than the issue of supply, supply shortage. The talent shortage is, is, is long-term. Now, again, the, the retreat on, on unemployment benefits will help that, but not a lot. I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed. Um, that's demographic. And there, that long-term problem has to be addressed with more long-term solutions. And we've talked about some of those already. In terms of supplies or raw materials, what you want to do is you want to focus on on just the trajectory of the price and also price futures. For example, earlier this year, wood was hard to come by. Well, now those prices are settling back down. Right now, there's a shortage of chips. The great thing about the capitalist system is that when prices go up, it increases the profitability of serving the market, which means companies invest in expansion of the supply. This is the great thing of the free market is that it, it, it helps to self-correct, which is what Kyle was talking about. Um, that is a source of inflation right now. I mean, you've got three sources of inflation. You've got Household spending, a lot of wanting to spend a lot of money, a lot of pent-up demand. That's demand side, and then you have cost. What we call cost push inflation. You've got wages being driven up, and you have supply chain shortages being driven up. The supplies issue is really driven by breakdown in supply chains. Um, you know, coming out of the 1990s when we globalized our supply chains, we sort of took them for granted, and we're paying the price for that right now. And it, you know, when you have ports in China or Vietnam closing down for weeks because of COVID, um, it it has ripple effects that take months, multiple months to to overcome. What you're gonna see is in this economy, you're gonna see some reshoring of production. I think that's gonna be good for manufacturing, um, especially in life sciences. um, When we find yourself that all your all your pharmaceuticals are basically produced abroad, that's a that's a that's a that's a human security, that's a national security issue. So I think we're gonna see some reshoring uh, in terms of, uh, of production base, m- making more, companies are gonna invest more in their supply chains being domestic. That's gonna take a long time to, to correct though. But I do think though, that these, these episodic shortages are correcting themselves. And that is a transitory part of inflation that will retreat. Um, but it's the labor part and the speculative investment part—that's harder to predict in terms of its impact on inflation.
1: Yeah, I think those are great points, Phil. And you talked earlier about having concerns about inflation. I guess that's my um, my belief is that largely these are just transitory issues, and that five percent you're seeing—I don't think anything—and and also that you know, yeah, we we have some surplus funds, and and people have have some pent up demand. So what we're seeing is demand is exceeding supply. Right, because some extra demand because people have a little extra cash in their pockets and supply shortages, so prices go up. Right, demand exceeds supply, prices go up. I think for the most part, those resolve themselves within the by the end of the year, and we start seeing those inflationary pressures back off. I also don't think that you know, I mean, a little bit of inflation. We've been under uh, the the Fed is under hit its target in inflation for basically the last decade, if not longer. I mean, they, they nominally say they, they want a 3% inflation target, and yet we really haven't hit that number on a consistent basis for a really long time. And I, I don't think that um, there's there's any reason to be concerned that, that we're going to be overshooting that on a on a long-term basis here and coming up anytime over the next couple of years.
2: I, I think, Matt... Uh, Kyle understates an area where there, there's some variation in worry, right? And that is what worries me is is that you've got a Fed that's keeping interest rates at zero, even while they're seeing inflation go up. And again, bringing it bringing bringing rates down to create to, to bail out the economy. Again, a very unprecedented recession, and spending you know tax cuts and tax rebates and and more generous unemployment benefits all of those were well-placed and were rapidly timed uh, to save us from catastrophe during COVID. I mean, we talk about how divided this nation is, but Trump and the Democrat Congress worked together to make to, to act very fast, and they saved us from catastrophe. So I don't want to minimize that. But we're, as we see signs of recovery, as we see unemployment falling b- below 6%, and we typically view the economy fully employed when it's five. In Indiana, we're at 4% inflation. We continue to see a Fed that has rates really low. We continue to see a government that is spending without abandon. That's what scares me. And that that will continue to lead to this overstimulation of demand for goods and services that the economy will not be able to supply even once it corrects the supply chain shortage. I'm a little bit more leery of, of the inflation issue because of the demand side scenario that I've just painted.
0: So I want to break this down a little bit. Talk about, you know, what should we look for um, in the economy that could indicate, oh, this inf- if there is inflation and the inflation we see becomes short term and starts to recede versus becomes more long term. You know, what indicators or what signs as economists do you guys look for um, to kind of elude you one way or the other? Well, we
2: know that the retreat on unemployment benefits is going to lead to an incremental increase in the labor supply, not a huge but incremental, right? So that should take pressure off of wages. The supply chains will correct themselves. So the question comes is, do we see those translating to a lower rate of inflation? And if we don't, then the demand side of the equation here, which is what I'm most leery about, it portends danger. So that would be one thing I would look at.
1: Yeah, I think there are going to be a lot of people who are paying a lot of attention to what the Fed is saying over the next three or four months. Um, I, I, I think obviously the the Fed and, and I, I think Phil kind of, we, we appropriately gave them a little victory lap for their, you know, their actions in 2020 being very aggressive. And so I, I, I do think we should keep that in, in perspective, but we've had over the last, really since 2008, you know, we've had the Fed take unprecedented actions and insert itself into the market in ways that that we really hadn't seen before that time, and so I, I do think there's always concern that you know there there could be something that that leads the first domino to fall, and that we we have some real concerns whether it's inflation or other sorts of financial crisis. I like Phil. I, I guess I think that. Um, the I, I see inflation as something that, that's going to occur or you know, those inflationary pressures are going to be there. I, I guess I just think that the Fed is going to be a little more proactive going forward in raising those rates and and trying to dampen any serious inflationary pressures.-
2: Matt, I think there's a race here. There's a race between equity prices and output prices. Output prices being what's measured by inflation. I mean, if you want to talk about inflation, we've seen in equity prices, you know, 25 to 30 percent increase in the price of stocks. The profit growth that we've seen is doesn't come close to sustaining that. And so um, what's going to pop first? Something's going to have to self-correct. And of course, if the stock market, if you see a correction in equities, uh, which I expect, because, again, the P.E. ratios are screaming correction. And that will itself slow down the economy, which will take pressure off of the Federal Reserve to increase interest rates. So I think we either see pressure coming from a correction in the stock market, or we see correction that that we see the Fed's hand being forced in terms of having to raise rates, which could itself cause the correction in the stock market, which we expect. So I'm going to be looking for one of those two things. Um, I would... you know, I, if I was a betting man and I'm not, but if I was a betting man, I'd put my money on on a correction stock market. For whatever reason, it's hard. Economists sort of scratch their head on this one. But we always when October hits, when the fourth quarter hits, we always see the stock market sort of wake up from sort of it's over. It's, it's, it feels hung over and it, it corrects itself every October for some reason. And guess what month is, ne- is we're, we're close to. So, well, you know, October is going to be a, a really interesting month to see what happens in the equity market. Again, there's no fundamental theory that supports why it should happen in October. It's just an interesting pattern that we see. Um, you know, black uh, the when the when the when the stock market tanked before in 1929, it was in October. So, um,
0: anyway, interesting footnote. So finally, as we begin to wrap up, you know, I want to, from where we, both of you sit, obviously you, you have different views and I uh, really appreciate that because I think that really helps bring a lot into the conversation. I think it helps, you know, the more wisdom you can get, the more perspective you can get, uh, the better decisions we could all make, you know, as organizational leaders. So from from where you sit, from the literature you've studied, from the trends you've seen, you know, I want to talk about what does the rest of the year potentially look like? You know, we obviously, it sounds like an October shakeup could be um, in the in in the cards um but i just want to see as we enter the fourth quarter what should organizational leaders do or how should we approach uh, you know the rest of this year
1: yeah i i guess um i think that for kind of main street businesses talking to Matt, to your audience here that is you know it, people in leadership positions i i think that you know they should expect that the demand will still be pretty good for their products, right? And and I I would encourage them to continue to make investments, have a growth plan and a growth mentality. Obviously, you know a lot of businesses are being affected by labor shortages, so that's something that that they have to work around. And and there's always these challenges and problems, but I don't see in terms of aggregate demand for products, I can see that the next you know, six months to a year is still going to look pretty strong, right? Hopefully we're we're building towards pandemic recovery and more people being out. Obviously, you know, one of the biggest things that we really haven't talked about it, but I'm concerned about setbacks in that area. Are there going to have to be, are we going to have to pull back from some economic activity because of the Delta variant or the next variant and those sorts of things? So those risks are always there, but I think from a, a macroeconomic point of view, I feel like, you know, soldier forward, build your, build your business, satisfy your customers, and, and demand will
2: be there going forward. Matt, my message to business is I, I would agree with Kyle on the demand side, right? I mean, even if we have a retreat because of the Delta or the Mu variant or whatever the variant X is, uh, history shows, epi- epidemiological history shows that we will get out of this, right? It's not gonna be as fast as we want, but the demand's gonna be there, right? The liquidity's out there. So, put put that growth plan into place. But really look at your business model and don't don't take anything for granted like like perhaps you did in 2019. You're gonna have to pay your workers more. Live with it. You know, the way you solve a a labor shortage is you pay people well and you make it a great place to work. Treat your employees like they deserve to be treated. Make the workplace, whether it's virtual or in person, a place where they feel strong, where they feel celebrated, and they feel part of a, part of a family. And if you're not doing that, and you're not paying them what they're worth in this new market, the market's going to make you, your competition is, and the market's going to make you irrelevant. So that's where the biggest threat to business is. It's not on the demand side. It's how you manage your business and how you lead. On the financial side, lock in now to purchasing fixed assets lock in at a fixed rate. And if you're sitting on a pile of cash and you've been wanting to make an investment in fixed assets, or you have access to working capital at a really low interest rate, make those investments now. Because interest rates are going to go up. And if you're sitting on a lot of cash, there's a risk that inflation will, 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 more, will abnormally depreciate the value of, of that cash. So it's better to have those sitting in fixed assets that increase your capacity when there is, when we do get past covid permanent, permanently, at least permanently and not being causing a a, a huge economic retreat, it's better to have that on the ground than be sitting on a bunch of cash and to to suffer through another year of 5% inflation. So that would be my that would be my two pieces of advice, which are kind of unconventional, because usually we talk about the demand side. But 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 managers and CEOs, they need to wake up and realize that the in the labor market, it's 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 going to be a it's going to be a sellers market for a long time to come.
0: Again, Phil Powell, associate dean of the Kelly School of Business and Economists. Also Kyle Anderson, clinical assistant professor of economics and the faculty chair of the evening MBA program. Gentlemen, it's been such an honor and always a pleasure to have you both back here on the ROI podcast.
1: Thanks, Matt. Always appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Matt. Great discussion. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.